um, sermon slash discussion. So if you guys could, if I could have your full attention, just turn this direction. I'd love to see the fronts of faces, not the backs of heads. And, um, and so I'm just going to let you know, uh, this is actually our last talk for the Ask Anything series. And, and so today's topic is, is one that I'm really excited to talk with you about because I think it's hugely, hugely important for the church and how we relate to our culture. And so um, if you're new and don't know what this Ask Anything series has been, we basically let our students ask us a bunch of questions, and we made each question into a sermon and, a, and made a series out of it. So this is week number eight on this, um, on this uh, sermon series. So um, today is the last week, and yes, I picked, for some reason, I picked Daylight Savings Time as the grand finale, all right? May want to rethink that next time, right? Um, but you guys are here, so I'm actually proud of you because there's a decent number of you here, and as you know, whenever it rains in Texas, it's like a snow day. Everyone says, I'm staying home, it's raining. Everything outside has water on it, which means I can't go to church. So, um, so I'm glad you're here, though, this morning. And uh, so um, this morning we were talking about this question, how should Christians respond to homosexuality? And this is a topic that I am uh, not nervous to talk about, but I'm going to admit to you this morning that I am a little bit nervous as to how you might receive what we talk about this morning. Um, I've actually only done, I think, maybe two talks in the Outback on a Sunday morning about this topic, and um, we did one on a Wednesday night about four or five years ago, and it's one that I feel like I am very passionate about in talking to the church because I feel like we, as a church, we really miss some things in discussing um, this particular topic. And so um, let me just give you a snapshot of how this morning is going to go. I'm just going to warn you this morning that I am—I intentionally chose not to have music today because this is going to be a long sermon. And normally I've got about four, four and a half pages of notes up here that I'm looking at. Today I have seven. So I might break Mrs. Ron Slaben's record for longest sermon ever in the Outback. She's at 53 minutes, by the way. That was her longest one she ever gave. And you're like, man, it didn't seem that long. She's so, she's engaging, so it didn't seem that long. But listen, I might actually go longer than that today. I just might. I don't know. Um, I'm going to try to keep the pace up, but we're covering a lot of ground this morning. So Put your cell phones away, bear with us, tune in this morning, um, cut out the distractions. I think this is a hugely important topic for us um, as a church and also as a youth group. And so here's how today's going to go. I'm going to look at some passages uh, towards the beginning of this talk. And when I look at the passages, that's where it's going to sound harsh at first. But that's not my goal. My goal this morning is to let you see compassion, let you see love, but also let you see honesty, and also let you see um, truth at the same time. That's my goal this morning. And so my goal is not to, if, you're, if your view is different than mine or different than this church, different than your friend that brought you here this morning, then my goal this morning is not to just offend you. My goal is to tell you what I think the Bible says, but then also to show compassion and to show love and humility, um, but to also let us see truth about this topic as well. 
So um, we'll look at some passages. We're going to answer some common questions that many people have about this topic and issue. Um, we're going to look at how, as a Christian, like how you should respond to different kinds of scenarios um, that you find yourself in, in these conversations. And we're also going to look at um, how Christians should respond to issues like gay marriage. Because um, obviously these issues are connected, so I want to make sure we cover the whole gamut. I was actually going to do two talks on this. One covering how Christians should respond to this issue personally, but then also how Christians should respond to it um, culturally. Meaning, as a church, like how do we respond to cultural issues like gay marriage and those kinds of things. So, But I decided to go ahead and make it one um, just long talk, so you've got to put up with me for the next hour or so. So, um, give you some of my background. I grew up close to Washington, D.C. Um, I grew up in a church about an hour from Washington, D.C., and so um, at my church, these kinds of issues were always seen as political issues. We were a real conservative Southern Baptist church. I can still remember my pastor who was, who was from Atlanta, Georgia, so he had a real strong southern accent. Um, he would stand in front of our church, and he would pound the pulpit, and he would say things like, homosexuality is an abomination. And everybody would be like, amen, you tell him, right? That's all we would say in relation to this issue um, from our church pulpit. That was it. And as a kid, I sat there and thought, well, I'm wondering if anybody here struggles with that issue, and, and maybe we should have that kind of discussion as opposed to just making it a political-only issue. And so when I was a kid, I saw it as just strictly political, and I didn't see it as a real personal issue. I didn't know anyone at that point that said, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm homosexual or I'm gay. I didn't, I didn't know anyone that would say that outright. And then when I was 19, I moved to Texas. And so I came to Texas to, to do an internship at a church in Arlington, Texas, and the initial plan was to come down for a year and then go back to the East Coast. And I came down and I never left. So some of you are like, I wish he had gone back, man. So, um, so I come to Texas. I come to Arlington. I'm working at this church. And in that house, of course, is the intern house that we all lived in, is where I met Casey Burke, who works here at the church. And um, there was... I became friends with many of the guys in the house right away. And I was, I was the youngest. I was like 19. Next youngest guy was like 23, 24. So I was the young um, child of the group. And there's this one guy in the house with us. His name was Dustin. And Dustin was kind of a quiet guy. Um, but we became friends. And about a month and a half into me living at that house, uh, Dustin and I were just talking one day, just the two of us. And he said, well, I feel like you need to know something since you're living here with all of us, and, and the rest of the guys in the house know this, but I'll, I want to make sure you know this since you're new here. And he told me, he said, um, you know, when I was young, he said, I, was, um, I had a father who was a university professor. He was real hard-nosed. He was real hard-lined. He was just a, a difficult father to live with. And his father would call him names. His father would use, like, homosexual lingo and call him names that were negative um, in, in a homosexual connotation when he was young. As a young boy, he would hear that from his own dad. And so his dad was also a military background, so he thought, well, how can I gain my dad's approval? So he went into the military, Dustin did. And in the military, because he didn't, because Dustin didn't fit the male stereotype 
that many people think of as the male stereotype. He was made fun of in the military. People in the military would, would call him the same names his own father called him. And so because of that, um, he began to start to wonder, like, well, well, am I gay? Like, am I really a homosexual? Like, am I, is that really who I am? And he got, he ended up getting honorably discharged because he had a health issue that kept him out of the military. So he went ahead and left the military. Then he goes into this, this questioning, and he was actually at this point a believer. And he began to question, like, well, what, what's my identity? What, who am I? What am I supposed to be? And so he ends up in this, um, house with all of us, this intern house. And he was a very upfront guy. He actually told the people, he said, look, you know, I want to make sure everyone knows, like, I struggle with this, but, you know, I'm also a believer. I'm trying to follow Christ. Um, it's a struggle, but I also want to follow Christ and I want to glorify him. And so here I am now in a house living with a guy that, um, that struggles with this and, and yet is still trying to follow Christ and work out his salvation, so to speak. And here's what happened. For the first time in my life, this issue, I began to see it as a personal issue, not a political issue. Because now I've got a friend. Now, now I've got someone that, um, that I became good friends with, and I began to see the world, his world, through um, a different set of eyes. And he is someone that, um, so he and I, even when he moved out of the house, once he moved out a couple years later, moved down the street into an apartment, and he and I would still have lunch occasionally. And God kind of used that friendship to help me see this is not just a political issue. Like this needs to be a personal issue. We should see it with, with, with those kinds of eyes, not just with political eyes. And so Dustin, um, we've since lost touch. I don't even know where he's at these days. But, um, but he was a friend when I was in college and, and someone I considered a friend and, and someone who was struggling with that issue, but he was someone who wanted to follow Christ and live out his walk with Christ. That's what he desired. That's what he desired. And so um, so my goal this morning, guys, is to challenge you how to be loving, but also how to be truthful. How to be compassionate, but also how to be honest about this particular Issue. So the first thing I want you to, I want us to answer this morning is this. The first question I want to get to is, is homosexuality a sin? I'm just going to start there this morning. Now, we know where our culture stands on the issue. You can watch TV, you can look at the media, you can see how it's talked about on news shows. Um, but here's what I want you to see this morning is that homosexuality is not new. Whenever you watch the news, people make it sound like that um, it's this somehow progressive thing like some kind of a new idea, right? And, and, and for us to say that it might be wrong or might be sinful, that, that we're like holding back progress, like we're holding back society because of our view on this. And I want you to see that homosexuality is nothing new. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in the New Testament. You may not know this, but 14 of the, the first 15... Roman emperors were considered homosexual or bisexual. Fourteen of the first fifteen Roman emperors. Plato wrote about um, homosexuality in his uh, symposium. The Roman emperor Nero, you may have heard of him, was also considered homosexual. And so 
Um, so to answer our question, I want you to, if you're writing stuff down, go ahead and write. I'm going to give you a lot of stuff to write down today, so be ready with your, with your um, paper and pens. Um, here's how I see this. Is homosexuality a sin? Homosexual acts are sinful, but homosexual orientation is a result of sin. I want to explain this to you. The Bible is clear. We're going to get to the passage in a moment, but homosexual acts are, the Bible calls those sinful, but homosexual orientation, that means homosexual desire, I think is a result of sin, meaning result of the fall, meaning result of the initial sin um, at the beginning of creation. And here's why I think that, because yes, homosexual orientation is not something, that's not God's desire or his intent for us, in the same way that um, for heterosexual men or women, his desire is not multiple sexual partners. But many people desire that, right? And so all of us are fallen in our sexuality. And so as a result of the fall, as a result of sin, um, we all have an orientation towards some kind of sexual sin. And so we're going to cover more of this a little bit later on, but I want you to get that up front, that the act is sinful, but the orientation, I think, is a result of the initial sin at um, the beginning of uh, creation. Now, we know that culture has always been um, sexually confused. That's just, in our culture, it's obvious. Um, This fact should not shock us. But let me just tell you this morning what I think is really shocking, and what should be shocking to us as believers is that I think Christians, the Christians are just as confused as the culture in which we live. This is what should shock us as as believers. Because Christians respond usually in one of two ways. Either total affirmation, total affirming and saying, this is totally God's plans, this is totally God's will, and so we should celebrate it and be compassionate and approve. There's total approval on the one end. On the other end, Christians show a lot of hatred and disgust for this particular issue. And I'm going to tell you this morning that both of these ideas are wrong. Both of these reactions among people that consider themselves Christians, I say, are wrong. In fact, one Christian pastor I've heard about recently named Brian McLaren, when he was asked if homosexuality is sinful, this is what he said. He said, it saddens me to know that I have good friends on both sides of the issue, so I can't answer that question without offending someone. And so someone who has been tasked with shepherding people, leading a church, at least he used to be a pastor, I think, he says, I've got good friends on both sides of the issue, and so I can't, I can't tell you either way if it's sinful or not, because if I say that, I'm going to offend my friends on this side, are going to offend my friends on this other side of the argument. And I understand, listen, I understand the desire to be compassionate. We should want to be compassionate. But we can't sacrifice truth for the sake of compassion. In fact, I would tell you that to not be truthful is to not be compassionate. You, if, if you're going to be compassionate, you've got to speak the truth. And there's a way we go about doing it. There's a way we atone that we use. We're going to get into some of these applications later on, but we have to understand 
that to be compassionate means that you also have to speak truth, at least what you know to be the truth. You can't sacrifice truth for the sake of compassion. And if you want to be a Christ follower, this has to be our call as Christians. This has to be our call. So there was a recent survey that said that 30%, I'm sure it's gone up since then, but 30% of Christians said that having a homosexual relationship is okay. That, that a third of Christians, and I would probably say it's even higher than that now. I would guess it's even higher than that. There was another survey, um, people on the street, people were asked the question, um, they were asked, say the first thing that they think when they hear the word Christian. Do you know what the number one response was to that question? It was, they hate gay people. The number one response on a street survey of, what do you think when you hear the word Christian? Number one response was, oh, they're the ones that hate gay people. Like, the thing that we're known for is that. And so you see that, that um, there are two polar opposites, two polar opposite ways in which we can err. We can err on the side of total affirmation and celebration, or we can err on the side of just being a jerk, not being compassionate, not being loving. And so you, you see that, that many Christians um, err on one side of that equation or the other. So the, I think the good news is that um, fewer and fewer Christians fit the category of that they hate gay people. But the bad news is that many Christians, of course, totally affirm it. And I think the motive is correct, which is compassion, but the wrong conclusion has been reached by some of those kinds of Christians. And so this morning I want you to know, if, if, if you're going to say that you believe this book, the Bible, if you're going to say you believe this book, then it's not compassionate to withhold truth from someone. And so this morning I want you to have this phrase just seared into your mind and your heart, and it's the phrase, as Christians we have to love boldly. We've got to be people who are characterized by a bold form of love. A form of love that is not afraid to have the discussion. A form of love that's not afraid to be bold and to speak truth. But also one that's characterized by compassion and love and care for people that may not agree with you. And so you're going to see, you're going to see real quick this morning that, um, that I really think that Christians have to stay off the social media rants when it comes to this issue. You can't get into social media rants about this issue, about gay marriage, about homosexuality in general, because you will broadcast that to all kinds of different people. And the, this conversation needs to have a lot of love and care and compassion as the basis of it. And you can't do that on social media. You just can't. You just can't. And I've seen too many Christians, even at this church, engage in the crossfire, back and forth, little snippet remarks and so on. And to me, that is not going to be the way forward for us. It's going to be the way um, backward when it comes to Christians showing love and compassion about this issue. So um, the first thing I want you to also see this morning is that all of us are broken and sinful in our sexuality. Every single person that's ever been created by God has been broken and sinful in our sexuality. 
You cannot elevate homosexual sin over other kinds of sexual sin. You can't see those that struggle with homosexuality as more sinful than you. Because every single one of you have thought that, haven't you? I know we all have. You have seen homosexual sin as more sinful than what you struggle with sexually. With your thoughts, your temptations. And we cannot see it as more sinful than what everyone else struggles with. And so, this morning we're going to look at um, a couple of passages. The first one's going to be in Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. And before I get to that passage, I want to just cover something briefly with you. And I'm not sure how many of you have, have watched television and seen these kinds of things said on television, but the reason why I'm going to the New Testament first and I'm leaving out these Old Testament passages on homosexuality is for this reason. Because if you turn on the news, people try to explain away the Old Testament passages by saying things like, you know, well, the passages on homosexuality in the Old Testament, they don't really apply anymore because it's right there with all the other weird Old Testament laws that no one follows. Like, no bacon, Right? Like, no pork for Israel. And, and then it's just kind of glossed over, and then the, the commentator might say, yeah, yeah, you're right, it's kind of old-fashioned to say that, because Israel had all these Old Testament laws, none of which the church follows today, and so why should we follow the law of, you know, no homosexuality, because that's right there with the other ones that we don't follow either, right? That's, that's, that's their logic. And, and whenever I hear that kind of stuff, I want to throw something at the TV because it's just sheer intellectual laziness when someone says that. And here's why. Don't ever forget what I'm about to say. Listen, this is your, your thinking in, in this issue. It's real simple. Israel had three kinds of laws. They had ceremonial law, which was the law surrounding the temple, the priest, sacrifices, and so on. And the reason why we don't follow those laws anymore is why? Jesus. Sunday school answer, yes. Jesus. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He's the fulfillment of the whole temple system. So the reason why we don't follow ceremonial law anymore like Israel did is because Jesus was the fulfillment of all those things. And so we no longer do those things that point to him because he's already come. That's why we don't do ceremonial law anymore. There was also civil law, another kind of law for Israel. Civil law was God's direct commands to Israel because they were a theocracy directly under his command and rule. And a civil law was how Israel was supposed to relate to each other. And so some of those laws are translatable to our culture, and we do have some of those laws in our culture still. But many of those were God's way of setting Israel apart as a nation. And so you get into things like some of the weird laws that you're just going, why is that in there? Well, God's set them apart as a nation of Israel, but when Christ came, again, that stuff changed. And there's no, there's, there's no Christian needs to follow that anymore in that, in that way. So there's ceremonial law, there's civil law, and then lastly, we have moral law. Moral law is the thing that never changes. It's why murder is still wrong. Because those same people on TV that say things like, well, you know, we throw out these laws, so we can throw out the sexual laws, too. 
And I'd want to say, well, okay, what about murder? Why is that still wrong? Let's throw that one out as well, right? And so it's just sheer intellectual laziness for someone to say that, to use that argument for why um, these kinds of things don't apply. And so here's what you need to know. That anything that was wrong in the Old Testament sexually is still wrong in the New Testament sexually. The moral law never changes. The same things that were morally wrong in the Old Testament are still morally wrong in the New Testament. This is what um, the thinking, uh, how the thinking goes for this kind of thing. Ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. And uh, I want to look now at, um, so I'm going to look this morning at a couple of verses in the New Testament that do call um, homosexuality sin. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 24 to 27. So read, read this with me. It says, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, this passage, to be clear, this passage is talking about people who are acting on their desires. Hey guys, if there's any conversations that are like happening, I want those to stop and, and just pay attention this morning. I really want you to focus this morning. I mean, I do every morning, but especially this morning. Okay, so just keep it, um, keep your attention this direction. Um, put your phones away, that kind of thing. Just really tune in this morning. So this passage is talking about people that are acting on their desires, not people that just have those kinds of desires, but those that are acting on it. Again, there's a difference between someone who is struggling with the desire and someone who is acting on their desires. And I want you to see there's a pattern here in this whole passage. And I'm actually going to expand this a bit. So go to my next slide. Um, I'm not going to read the entire passage, but if you go from Romans 1, verses 18, all the way to 32, you're going to see this 10-point pattern unfold um, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. And here's, the, here's what the pattern is. The first thing we see is... The unrighteous become oblivious to the obvious truth. Number two, man falls in love with his own vanity. Then number three, the heart that is empty is full of darkness, verse 21. And then number four, a new wisdom is claimed. This is when you see things like things that are sinful get labeled as progress. Oh, we had this new knowledge, this new enlightenment, you know, um, this was. This is so outdated. This is progress. This is new. And the crazy thing is that these sins have been around since day one. There's nothing new. But people act like there's this new enlightened knowledge of, oh, now we know, like, this is new. This is progress. And so you see in, in number four, a new wisdom is claimed. And number five, God's truth is exchanged for a lie. Let's go to the next slide. They worship creation, including their own bodies, verse 23, 25. God gives them over to their sinful desires, verse 26. They engage in homosexual activity, verse 26 and 27. They receive just penalties and consequences for their actions, verse 27. And then number 10, 
homosexuality is approved and celebrated in the culture. And this is written a long time ago from Paul to the Romans. And the really scary thing is that in our culture, we're already at number 10. We're already at number 10 as a culture. And again, the scariest part about this is that Christians, the Christians are joining in agreement with what the culture is saying. And so the question, is homosexuality a sin? I'm going to say it again. Choosing to live the homosexual lifestyle is a sin, but the orientation, meaning the desires, I'm going to tell you, is a result of sin, is a result of the fall, is a result of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And I say this because if you're sitting here and you're someone that struggles with this particular issue, I don't want you to leave here and think that you are somehow more fallen than someone who is heterosexual and they're just fallen in their heterosexual way. Like you are not more fallen than anybody else when it comes to sexuality. But here's what I'll tell you though. I I do acknowledge that homosexuality, I think, can be a bit more complex for us to talk about and a bit more complex in a sense to kind of deal with and talk through. But that does not mean you're more fallen. It doesn't mean you're more sinful than someone else when it comes to us all being fallen in our sexuality. So being tempted to sin is not the same thing as sinning. Jesus Christ himself was tempted to sin, but he never sinned. The next question I want you to want us to look at is, are people born homosexual or is it a choice? Are people born gay or is it a choice? And here's, you know what the culture says. The culture says, what? They say you're born that way. The Lady Gaga song, right? Um, wasn't that an album, not just a song? It was a whole, I mean, she, that's, that's, that's her words, you're born that way. I actually looked at the lyrics of that song just to see like the actual whole song this past week. And, um, and it's very obvious what her, her point is in that song is, is that, you know, you can't help it. You're born that way. Just embrace it. This is who you are. This is your identity. And what I would say to someone who says that, I would say homosexuality is so much more complex than just saying you're born that way. Again, I think it's just intellectual laziness to say you're just born that way. That's just the way it is. Right? But here's the other thing. There are people that are all over the map, Christians and non-Christians, that try to get into um, the reasons why. Why is someone homosexual? Why is someone not homosexual? And here's what I've determined and just what I've read. I'm, not, I'm no expert on this, obviously, but I, I really think what I've determined is that they're all inconclusive. There have been people that have tried to find genetic predisposition predisposition. They've tried to find, map out the brain of people that say they're homosexual. And what they have found is that much of it is simply just inconclusive. Even those that are not believers, even those that are scientists that are not believers, you you might find some studies that they say, well, this kind of points to it, but it's like, in the end, other serious scientists would just say it's inconclusive. You You can't say someone's just born that way genetically. And on the other hand, um, there are conservatives, many Christians that will say things like, well, it's totally a choice. It's completely a choice. And I think that Christians make the same mistake that our culture makes. We see it too simply. 
Just to say it's just a choice is, is too simple of an answer. It doesn't deal with some of the complexities and some of the nuances of what would cause someone to have these kinds of desires. Because you will, if you talk to people that struggle with this particular issue, there are some that will say, you know, when I was young, I just felt like I had these desires at an early age. And they weren't abused. They don't always have some story as to why it might be. But then there are other people that say, well, I had these desires at a young age. And yes, I was abused by an uncle or whoever else. And then you might say, well, maybe it's because you're abused by a same-gender older person. Maybe that's why. Well, that might be a reason. But can we say for everyone that's the, re- that's the reason why? Not really. We can't always say it that way. Other people maybe show no desire towards homosexuality, but they just start experimenting. They just start experimenting. And so they start um, having experiences, and they start to think, well, maybe I'm a homosexual because I... You know, and, and it's, I'm not trying to joke around here, but I mean, it goes back to the Katy Perry song that you might know as well, right? And I tried this and I liked it, and that's just what it is, right? I actually worked with a couple of, um, a couple of girls that were, when I was in college, I was working at a, at a, uh, as a waiter, and a cut, this one girl, she was dating this one guy, and then she, they break up, she's upset, and next thing I know, she's saying that she's bisexual. And my first thought was, okay, I've known you for a year. You've never said that once. You're just mad at that dude, <laughs> you know? You're just mad at that guy that broke up with you. Now, I'm not being too simplistic here. I'm just telling you that there are some people that kind of experiment, and then they find these desires in them because they've experimented and done some sinful things, right? And so I'm not trying to say this morning what causes it, um, I think culture is wrong to say you're born that way. I think the church is wrong to say it's just a sheer choice. Because I don't think you wake up, no one wakes up one morning and says, you know what, um, I'm going to choose to be a homosexual. I'm going to choose these desires. Like, no one actually does that. Now, I will say people choose the lifestyle, but I don't think we can say that people always choose their desires. And so I think we've got to be a bit more um, nuanced in how we discuss it and talk about it. Um, Go ahead and put this next uh, slide up on the screen. Next slide up on the screen, please. There we go. No, not that one. It was after, are people born homosexual or is it a choice? It should be the one. Okay. Um, We don't always choose our... This sounds like the Dosa Keys commercial, doesn't it? Um... We don't always choose our desires, but when I do, dosakis, right? Um, I just realized that when I wrote that, it sounds like that. So we don't always choose our desires, but we choose what to do with those desires. We choose what to do with those desires. And so sometimes the orientation can be, again, can be a result of our choices. Like the girl I just talked to you about. I think that in her situation... She, sh- she showed no orientation towards homosexuality until she started experimenting. And so I think experimentation can lead to you having desires now that you didn't have before. Right? So there are times, I think, when your choices can lead to, your choices can lead to a changing of some of your desires. The next question I want us to look at 
um, is the question, can Christians be homosexuals? Um, this is a question I'm sure that many of you probably even have people ask you the question. I'm not sure if you have or not. But So the question is, can Christians be homosexuals? The question is, can someone live a homosexual lifestyle and still be considered a Christian? I'm going to say this to you this morning. It's not our job to judge someone's salvation. But if someone claims to be a Christian, then it is our job to call them to repentance in whatever kind of sexual sin they are participating in. And I'm not going to get into like looking at 1 Corinthians 5 because it's too long of a passage, but if you read on your own, there's, there's 1 Corinthians 5 is a passage you can look up on your own. There's a man who's caught in sexual sin, not homosexuality, but something different. And Paul talks about how the church should respond to sexual sin with this one particular man in 1 Corinthians 5. And what he basically says, a summary of what he says, is that Christians are not called to judge the sin of non-Christians. But we are called to judge lovingly confront the sin of other Christians. What's the, what's the main thing you hear in our culture today is, you know, don't judge me. Like, don't judge, don't judge. It's like, well, okay, there, there's some misinterpretation going on there scripturally because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that, yes, Christians should not judge the sin of non-Christians. But Christians are called to judge the sin of other believers or people that claim to be believers. So if someone that you know says, I'm definitely a Christian, I believe this book, I believe this Bible, and they're living in some kind of sin, or maybe even living in some kind of a sexual sin, then as a Christian, it's my role as a brother in Christ to go to that brother or sister in Christ and say, let's talk. Let's have a conversation because what you're doing with your lifestyle is not matching up with what this says. And you say you believe this. And and I'm in sin now if I don't take you to the Bible and show you where it says that you're living in sin. Again, love and compassion rule the day. But we've also got to be people that stick to truth when it comes to the Scriptures. So maybe a better question is this. Can a Christian live a lifestyle of sin and be in the will of God? Maybe that's a better question. Can a Christian live a lifestyle of sin and be in the will of God? Can a Christian have a homosexual orientation and homosexual desires and still be a Christian? The answer to that is absolutely they can. Yes, they can. In the same way that you can be sinful, have sinful thoughts and desires in a heterosexual way and still be a Christian because that's every single person who's ever been created, right? Then you can still be a Christian. You, you are, if you're a Christian and you have these desires, the fact that you have these desires does not lessen your Christianity, or lessen your faith. It's, just, it's simply just another way in which our fallenness has come out differently in your life versus someone else's life. And so you can absolutely be a Christian even if you have a homosexual orientation and desire. Um, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. Here's what Paul says. He says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now this is a really, going to sound like a real harsh passage. Just be prepared for that. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Aren't you glad we don't use some of those words anymore? Like, I, I never said about a kid, that kid, he's a swindler. He swindles everybody. Everyone is swindled by him. Like, we don't say that. We, that, that means you're a deceiver, right? Swindler. So here's what, Paul, here's what Paul does not mean in this passage. He does not mean that someone who's committed these kinds of sins can't become a Christian. Because that would be everyone. He also does not mean that if someone, that if a Christian who's committed um, these acts, that they lose their salvation. We don't think you lose your salvation. The Bible doesn't teach you to lose your salvation. So we're not saying if you commit one of these acts as a Christian, well, suddenly, sorry, sorry, you're out. You've lost your salvation. We don't, we don't believe you lose your salvation. Because again, the list, if you look, if you look past the, the buzzwords like homosexuality, what else does he say? He says, um, sexually immoral. Well, that's really all of us on some level. Idolaters. That's all of us. Thieves. Have you stolen things before? Greedy. That's all of us. Drunkards. Might be some of you. Liars. That's almost all of us. So this list includes everybody. So Paul's not referring, listen, Paul's not referring to people who struggle with sin. He's referring to people who, um, he's not referring to people who struggle with sin and then they repent and then they continue to have certain struggles and desires. He's referring to those who never repent. This passage is about people who never turn from their sin, like sin in its entirety. And so the point he's trying to make is that, yes, if you die in your sins without repenting and turning to Christ, then yes, you will spend eternity separated from God. That's his point in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. But I want you to look at the next verse. Go to my next slide. And that is what some of you were. So that meaning the long list I just read off to you. That is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so when you saw that list a while ago, if you were starting to get fearful of, oh man, like I struggle with these things. Like what if I'm not saved? What if I'm not really a believer? Well, the next verse, Paul, what does he say? He says, you're sanctified, you're washed, you're justified. And so what is his big point? This verse, this passage is not about just what sins you've committed. It's a passage about identity. All of us are born into sin. We're born into sin. Sin is our identity. But Jesus washes us, he purifies us, and he declares us righteous before God if you put your faith and your trust in in him and his finished work for you on the cross. In our culture today, so many homosexuals see homosexuality as their identity. They see it as this is who I am. This is who God made me to be. This is who I am. What we see in this passage is that for any Christian, go to my next slide, for any Christian, sin is no longer your identity. Jesus is. 
Jesus is your new identity if you're a believer in Christ. If you put your faith and trust in him, sin, we no longer get to say, this is who I am. My sin is who I am. My sin is my identity. Because Jesus is your new identity. Now again, this does not mean that we never struggle. I, will, I think one of the worst things you can tell a person who's a Christian who struggles with homosexuality is that you know, once you come to Jesus, you're never going to have a bad thought ever again. That's one of the worst things you can tell someone in that situation. Just like I would never tell a heterosexual Christian, new Christian, hey, come to Jesus, you'll never be tempted towards pornography ever again. Because you know the Christian life is a walking struggle with sin. There's two things I want you to see from this passage, and it's this. Do not elevate homosexual sin above other sexual sins, or other sins, period. Don't elevate homosexual sin above other other sins. And then secondly, if you struggle with homosexuality, there's healing. There's healing. And I say this knowing some people that have struggled and knowing some people that are married and God has set them free. God has healed them. Yes, it can happen. It can happen. And again, healing does not mean you never have a thought. Healing does not mean you never have a a struggle or never have a temptation or a desire. But this is what I think healing is. Healing does not mean you're never tempted, but that God gives you power over the temptation. God gives you power. It's no longer your identity. God gives you power. Sin no longer reigns over you. Sin no longer has a power over you like it once did. And so you might be have some desires. You might have some temptation. But it does not mean it's your identity and that it's who you are. And so I want to answer some questions this morning. Um, as we head towards the conclusion here. And the first question is, so what should I do if I struggle with this particular um, issue? The first thing I want you to know this morning is that um, if you're here and you struggle with this personally, then um, know from me that we love you. And we treat this like any other kind of sin. Know that from me and from the stage. I also want to ask your forgiveness for our lack of compassion, for how we've talked about this particular issue. I also want to encourage you to not buy into the lies that our culture is trying to sell you. And if I didn't say that to you, it would be not compassionate if I didn't encourage you in that direction and then lastly, if you struggle with this issue, then I'm going to encourage you to come um, talk to me or another leader that you trust that's here, um, that's one of your shepherds, one of your interns possibly. And you might be surprised that I'm saying that. Because you might think, well, if I struggle with that, like why, why, should, like, why do you guys want to help me walk through this? And it goes back to my first point is that we love you. I do think the church has a lot of 
we have a lot of um, baggage and issues in our inability to love someone and walk with them through whatever, whatever place they find themselves in. I've seen so many students, even at my previous job before I came to TBC, that once they shared this with me, that this is their struggle, they hit the road. Because they felt like, yeah, I can't go back there. I can't, I can't. I'm not just saying this morning that you tell like, every. I'm saying like, come and talk to someone that you know, that you trust, we'll walk with you. If we can't do that about this particular sin struggle, then we should just close up shop. Why can we do it about any other sin struggle or issue as a church? And so that's my encouragement to you if you struggle with this personally. The next question I want to get into is, is what should I do if I've got a friend who struggles with this, which I'm sure is probably most of you. And my answer to that is it depends. How you handle this depends on the situation. I'll put some things on the screen for you this morning. If there's someone who claims to be a Christian, but they're embracing the lifestyle, they're, it's, a, it's a guy and he's saying he's got a boyfriend, a girl saying she has a girlfriend, they're embracing it, they're they're um they're out in the open with it. They're very celebrating um their homosexuality, but they also say they're a Christian. Then I would say, according to First Corinthians chapter five, that as a friend, you confront them in love. Be compassionate, but you confront them in love with the truth of God's word. And there might be some steps leading up to that, but I think that's what First Corinthians five challenges us to do. The second way to look at this. If they claim to be a Christian and they're struggling, meaning they see it as sin, but they are struggling with that particular issue, then you love them, you, you remain their friend, you be their friend, but you encourage them, I think, to get counsel from someone that they trust. And this is how I think you walk with someone through that. And then thirdly, if they don't claim to be a Christian and they embrace the lifestyle, then you love them, you be their friend, and you talk a lot about Jesus and his desire to save us from all of our sin. Like, you don't hone in on just like, oh, this one thing. But you talk a lot about Christ and his desire to save us from everything, all of our sin. And you keep the conversation there. Because the gospel isn't you know, change so you can come to know Christ. Or change, better yourself, perfect yourself, pretty yourself up so you can come to know Christ. The gospel is come to Jesus and he'll change you. That's the gospel. You don't change yourself, then come to Christ. You come to Christ and let him change you. And this is where I think the church has failed miserably when it comes to this particular sin struggle, because we have so put forth the message that, you know what, the church, we just really can't handle that. 
we, we just can't go there. We can't handle that. And so now I want to, this morning, get into the issue of how should the church respond to cultural issues like gay marriage? I'm going to ask you just to, it's 12.05 right now, but just stay tuned in. Um, I've got two more pages, most of which I'll read very quickly, and then you guys can get out of here, okay? How should the church respond to cultural issues like gay marriage? And here's the, um, the options that I want you to see. I got these from a blog recently. The first one is this, and it sounds kind of dramatic, but here's what it is. Make a sign, say, make a sign saying, America's going to hell, and walk the city streets warning of impending doom for America's sins. And there are people that do that. I've seen them. I know you've seen them too. You've heard them talk about this kind of thing. That's one option, which I think is a bad option. Number two, be paralyzed in fear because the changes in our society are too big for us. Leave the situation to God and do nothing. And I've seen many do that as well. So guess what? I'm going to go for option number three. Option number three is remember that God is sovereign. He has called us to love others and preach the gospel to all nations. And we are supposed to trust him to bring people to repentance and faith in Jesus. I'm going option three. Because our society and our government will do all sorts of things that we disagree with. This is not the first time and it's not going to be the last time. But again, the problem is that many Christians are trying to show compassion by endorsing and promoting gay marriage. I've seen, I've actually had a student here that uh, finished a couple years ago, and she and I had a very honest discussion. And she's someone who would say that she thinks it's a sin. She would call it, still calls it sin. But she um, has lots of friends that are gay, and she said, but when I'm talking to them, I feel like that it's compassionate to say, I'm in favor of gay marriage. So she's in favor of gay marriage, but she says that she's against it personally, like in a personal sense, against homosexuality, still sees it as sinful. And I think that's just a kind of a confusing way for a Christian to look at this, and here's why. Because if you're going to say that you favor gay marriage, and that's your effort to be compassionate, um, then I have some questions for you. If you're in favor of gay marriage, then I've got three questions I want to ask you this morning. The first one is this. Are you prepared to say that moms and dads are interchangeable? Are you prepared to say that a kid having a mom and a dad just doesn't matter? Are you prepared to defend that position and to say that's, that's just as good as a kid having a mom and a dad, a kid having two moms or a kid having a two dads? Because what's going to happen is if you say and you're fighting for gay marriage, then you are also saying that they should also be able to, to adopt society's children. And if you're in favor of gay marriage, and you would also need to be saying that you think that moms and dads are interchangeable, and it doesn't really matter. The second thing I want you to see, the question I want to ask you is, on what basis do you still say that marriage must be monogamous, meaning just two people? If you're going to look at this book and say, well, you know, yeah, I know God says that that homosexuality is wrong or sinful, but I'm in favor of gay marriage, then I'm going to say to you, then, well, if you're willing to kind of push aside the homosexuality issue, then on what basis do you say that marriage should just be two people? Why not push that aside as well? Like, why not fight for that as well? And this ties into my third question, and it's this. You're going to learn a new word this morning, polyamorous. 
Are you prepared to defend polygamous and polyamorous marriages when they desire equal rights as well? Polygamy would be one man, many wives, or one wife, many husbands. Polyamorous relationships, new word for you possibly, is group marriage. That might be two men, three women, they're all married to each other. And you might think I'm crazy, but I read the Washington Post about a month ago. And in that article, they said that polyamorous relationships among gay men are all the rage right now in certain cities in our country. That means they're not really in a committed relationship. They're just kind of sharing a house, and they're all sexual with each other. And there are groups that are actually starting to fight. Now, once gay marriage has gained, attract, has gained traction, they're actually trying to move towards possibly polyamorous marriages, polygamous-type marriages. And so once you redefine marriage, you now open a Pandora's box for all kinds of redefinition. And my question to you would be, if you think that's okay, then why would you also not fight for polygamous marriages and polyamorous marriages? Because they don't they have the same right? Don't they have the same right that um, those pushing for homosexual marriage? So... Um, some thoughts for you to think about in relation to that particular issue. And I want to close um, with a couple of more quotes here. Um, many Christians say, but they just want to be happy, right? Let's just let them get married. They just want to be happy. Um, let's let them be happy. And my next statement is, is blunt, and it's very crass, but it applies to heterosexuals and homosexuals, and it's this. Next slide, please. We were not designed to find ultimate happiness in the person we have sex with. You are not designed to find ultimate fulfillment and happiness, whether you're a heterosexual or homosexual, in the person that you um, engage sexually with. That's not how you're made. That's not how you're designed. That's not how God designed sexuality. And so we've talked a lot today about what it means to be truthful, but also to be compassionate, um, what it means to love someone boldly about this particular issue. But I want you to hear this morning a story about a church I heard recently and how I think they lived out this idea of loving people compassionately and boldly. And here's how they did it. There's a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the pastor had compassionately spoken about um, LGBT issues and how Christians have to stand for truth but also show love at the same time. And as a result, the LGBT community in that area heard about it and decided to do, to do a protest at the church on a Sunday while people are going into the church service. The pastor heard about the planned protest, so he writes a letter to the LGBT group saying that they're more than welcome to come to the church, that they'd be met with nothing but kindness and love if they come to their church to protest. He also invited them to sit down with them and have respectful dialogue anytime they want to. The pastor even invited them to dinner at his house. And then this is what the pastor wrote on his blog as a result of what this protest and how the response they saw from the church. This is what the pastor wrote on his blog a couple of weeks later. He says, on Sunday morning, August 26, about 10 protesters showed up. 
we were disappointed there were so few. And some of our leaders met with them, offering them water and snacks, sharing God's love and truth with them, and then inviting them to join us in the service. After a few minutes, they left, explaining that we were too nice and loving to deserve a protest. And then the next day, he says, Monday, August 27th, the leader of the protest called into my radio show to apologize publicly for the protest, explaining that their anger was aimed in the wrong direction. And then he said these words, once we got there Sunday morning, we were greeted with absolute perfect love. I mean, it was fantastic. This is a church that embodies what I'm talking about, a church that says we're going to love boldly. We're going to still speak truth, but we're also going to be compassionate as we speak truth. And this is what I think the gospel calls every single one of us to, because the gospel sets us free to love people in this kind of way. And so this morning, it's, it's really, um, it's late, so I'm going to go ahead and pray, and just we're not going to have discussion because of time. But I'm going to pray for you, and I, and I pray, if, if, if this creates any questions, I hope it does, please come talk to us. Please come talk to us as we, as we talk through how the church can love boldly, especially in this area. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for being a God that pursues us, being a God who you pursue us in spite of all kinds of sin, Father, that we have in our lives. God, we pray that, um, that this church, this youth group, would be a place where we can be compassionate. We can be people who um, love boldly. We can be people who stick to truth, but we don't sacrifice compassion as we stick to truth. But also to be people who are compassionate, but don't sacrifice truth. Help us to be that blend, because that's, that's really what you are. You're a God who loves us, you have compassion for us, but yet your word speaks many truths that offend us. Your word calls us a sinner. That's offensive to us, but we know it's true. It hurts us. At times it feels like it's painful, but we know it's true. God, we pray that, um, that this particular issue would not be a stumbling block, um, keeping anyone from coming to know you. I pray there's no one in this room that would say, you know, I just don't understand the church's stance on this particular topic, therefore I'm out. I pray, God, that you would help us to see your word as truth. And to, yeah, as we struggle through it and walk through these kinds of things, God, that you would give us wisdom and discernment. I pray that, um, that you would help us as a church to be known for the kind of compassion and the kind of love that we saw exemplified by this church in Charlotte, North Carolina. I pray that would be our reputation in this town. We pray that for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thanks for coming today.